0: Would you listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah? The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build And to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. and i will be their god and they shall be my people no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest says the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more the word of god for the world Um, after making the group sing the opening lines of Jeremiah was a bullfrog at the first session of our study of Jeremiah in Greenville this fall I asked the group what they knew about the book of Jeremiah now you'll be grateful I didn't ask you to sing that unless you want to but if you think about it it really makes some sense A woman in the class listened to the various responses to this question about um, what they knew about the book of Jeremiah. And then she said, well, I've taught this book many times and it's about hope. It's not about all this weeping and crying. It's just about hope. And we just got to get to the hope. Well, i let that sit a minute. And then I said, well, I agree there's hope, but that's not all. I think we need to linger for a while on the Trail of Tears in order to make sure we understand the depths out of which real hope is born. If we rush too quickly past the destructive verbs in chapter 1 and again in chapter 31, plucking up, pulling down, destroying, overthrowing, and grab for the hopeful ones, hopeful ones planting and building, we might not learn all the lessons we need to learn. I believe there's truth in that. So that's where we start today's sermon, on the Trail of Tears. It's interesting what comes up when you Google Trail of Tears. The most familiar reference is the forced removal of Cherokee Indians from their native home east of the Mississippi River to Oklahoma in the late 1830s. This Indian removal policy that affected the Cherokee Nation also forced the relocation of most Native American tribes, resulting in violent battles like the one that happened at Wounded Knee, the loss of an untold number of innocent lives, and the systematic degradation of a whole race and culture of people. Army Private John G. Burnett was witness to the horror and violence of that dark moment in United States history. He wrote this description in his journal. I saw the helpless Cherokees arrested and dragged from their homes and driven at bayonet point into the stockades. And in the chill of a drizzling rain on an October morning, I saw them loaded like cattle or sheep into 645 wagons and started toward the west. On the morning of November 17th, we encountered a terrific sleet and snowstorm with freezing temperatures, and from that day until we reached the end of the fateful journey on March 26, 1839, the sufferings of the Cherokees were awful. The trail of the exiles was a trail of death. The Google search also references the slavery trail of tears called America's Forgotten Migration, the journey of a million African Americans from the tobacco South to the cotton South in the early 1800s. The degradation of African Americans in this country has taken many forms, and today we have levels of racial unrest not seen in this country since the 1960s. Will we ever learn? The Nazi Nazi regime affected a Jewish trail of tears, leading to the systematic murder of European Jews, thousands of them, and the displacement of so many more. Like the Syrian refugees now, the United States was reluctant to open open borders then to accept Jewish refugees. We have been and continue to participate in the perpetuation of human suffering when we witness folks on trails of tears and close our eyes and our hearts as we turn away and shut our doors. Are you feeling bad yet? The text from Jeremiah attests to the reality that the Jewish people were no strangers to Trails of Tears. Most Hebrew Bible scholars today contend that the actual authors of Jeremiah and many of the other Old Testament books were among the powerful and political and religious elite carried off to Babylon following the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army in 587 BCE. The protective walls of Jerusalem had been raised. The temple, the home of Yahweh that housed the Ark of the Covenant containing the tablets on which the laws were written, this center of their religious life lay in ruins. These powerful people, found themselves in chains, forcibly removed from their homeland on a degrading march to exile in Babylon, leaving family and friends behind without hope of return. The psalmist records the devastating effects of this disaster. By the waters of Babylon, they sat down and wept for Zion. And Rachel cried aloud for her lost children. In Jeremiah, Pain and Promise... Kathleen O'Connor makes the case that the book of Jeremiah can be understood as a story told at the end of the Trail of Tears, told by a people who were most likely suffering with what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The word trauma comes from the Greek word for wound and refers to the violence that inflicts injury, not to the wound itself. To be traumatized... O'Connor writes, is to receive a blow, to become the victim of sudden and perhaps repeated assaults, whether physical or emotional. Trauma inflicts wounds without words. O'Connor maintains that the effect of this kind of trauma on a whole culture is nothing short of disaster. She puts it this way, disasters turn life upside down and shake the world apart in unimaginable and unspeakable ways. They destroy daily existence and shatter its meanings. They leave people stunned, isolated, and hopeless. She points out that the effects of trauma play out in multiple and sequential ways. People are overwhelmed, possessed by their fragmented memories of the trauma. They begin to cycle them over and over in agonizing repetition of the suffering, in their dreams as well as their waking life. They lose the ability to talk about the suffering they've experienced and, as a result, grow increasingly numb emotionally. This numbing causes the values, beliefs, and rituals that once sustained life and hope to lose their meaning. Disasters, O'Connor says, can mortally wound faith and trust. We've all experienced trauma in one way, shape, or form. This is part of the vulnerability of being human. Sometimes we bring tragedies on ourselves, and sometimes they happen for no apparent reason. Regardless of what causes them, the experience is the same. The lights go out, darkness falls, and we wonder if the light will ever return. We lose our way and our perspective. We are no longer in control, and all we can do is ride out the storm and pray for it to pass. Anyone who's experienced this kind of devastation knows that you cannot rush past or through unspeakable suffering. Sitting in sackcloth and ashes is stark reality and despair. And it's a close and constant companion expressed most often in sighs and groans too deep for words. Those who deal with people with PTSD suggest that one of the most effective ways to move past trauma is for victims to tell their stories, to share the horror, to work it out by talking it out. After all, hindsight, they say, is twenty twenty. We gain wisdom following the difficulties that befall us as we give them voice. Sharing the burden with those around us in safe space helps. Sharing and bearing the tears of others is part of the way to which Jesus calls us. In that sharing, hope can grow and healing can start. We see this in Jeremiah as the powerful leaders now in exile look back and tell the story of the prophet who warned them of impending danger, the prophet whose word they ignored. They, they chose denial instead. They flirted with human power and might, focusing on themselves. In chapter 1, verse 16, Jeremiah describes their behavior as worshiping the work of their own hands. These writers reflect on this behavior that brought them to their knees. They ponder aloud about the experience of God's anger, grappling with the unspeakable grief and loss, turning over and over their questions about whether God has forsaken them, wondering if God is still with them and if there is ever any hope of recovering anything close to what has been lost. And as they reflect, they come to recognize that what they experience as God's anger is, in reality, an outward expression of God's inward grief at their willful self-reliance, at their willingness to trust only in God's they can see or construct, at their preference for power and wealth, at their refusal to see the plight of those they were called to shepherd and tend. In telling their story through tears of grief and loss, in confessing their selfishness and lack of trust, in voicing their fear and hopelessness, clarity begins to come. And they can hear the voice of the Lord through the prophet that they had once ignored. Surely the day is coming. I've watched over my people during their devastation, and I will watch over their rebuilding. I will write forgiving, forgetting love on their hearts. As we said in Free For All this past Tuesday, this passage in Jeremiah is God's reset button for the Hebrew people. Their hope begins to grow as they face their trail of tears. I must be honest with you. My hope is in short supply right now. The state of this political season has been as disheartening as anything I have experienced in my lifetime, and I'm old. I have a kid that's fixing to be 30 years old and i'm only 29 <laughs> the deep divisions in our country are evident and growing deeper though with every debate and debacle and to make matters worse violent rhetoric spews from the lips of our presidential candidate as he brags about sexual exploitation of women that's not a partisan statement that's a pastoral and personal agony What I find equally disturbing in this is the reaction of religious folks excusing the behavior. And consider this. As of 2015, the Southern Poverty Law Center identified 892 separate hate groups in the United States. That number represents a 14% increase over 2014. White supremacists comprise the vast majority of these groups. Which are concentrated in the southern United States. Relations between the African American community and police in many cities cause the regular eruption of violence. The middle class is shrinking as the gap between rich and poor grows. Worldwide violence, refugees in the millions, and ethnic and political distrust proliferate. And that's not to mention nat- natural disasters. The vulnerable reality of the world we live in is easily overwhelming. And I confess that some days it feels like I am walking a trail of tears, overwhelmed vicariously, if not personally, with the level of unspeakable violence, unrest, and devastation that is pervasive and demoralizing. Maybe you feel the same, and God bless you if you don't. So how do we find the hope in the midst of all of this? Sometimes it feels like we're looking for a pony in a pile of manure. But like those ancient Israelites, I can only tell you where I find it. And I find it in the sharing of story. Listening to the honest questions, honest pain, authentic experiences of this community of faith, of colleagues, of people I don't even know gives me the will to persevere, to lean into hope rather than to hide. Inevitably, when I sit down with someone and really listen and share, I find myself in awe of the resilience and goodness of human beings. Hope grows. I can resist the stifling generalities that incite fear and hopelessness and focus on the underlying unity that is a manifestation Of God's divine life and spirit. Like the ancient Israelites, I find hope when I look for and see the web of interconnectedness in life. In connections lie miracles and evidence of the underlying grace of God watching over us in devastating times of scarcity and loss as well as abundance and growth. How I got to Providence is one such story of inexplicable spirit connections that bear fruit in unexpected ways. Who besides God could work in the midst of my own trail of tears following a painful job loss to bring me to Providence to work with Julie, whom I had met through Karen Jackson, whom I had met through Sula Hurley, and how many of you know who she is? There's no way to humanly manufacture that kind of mysterious interconnection. Hope grows as I recognize the ways our lives are tied together by the underlying unity that is a manifestation of God's divine life and spirit completely outside my human awareness and control. Like the ancient Israelites, I find hope in the recognition that God is not housed in a building or in tablets of stone away in a box to which I have no access. The divine one resides in our hearts, writing there a relationship based on love and commitment. This love doesn't give up or give in. This love forgives, restores, unites, forgets. I started to title this sermon, God's Amnesia. This love is forged not only on the mountaintop where all is rosy, but on the trail of tears when things are at their lowest ebb and all seems lost. The Native Americans, well acquainted with the trail of tears, held to this proverb, the soul would have no rainbow if the eye had no tears. The soul would have no rainbow if the eye had no tears. Hope grows as I trust the rainbow-powered love of God, visible through tears, written on hearts. And like those ancient Israelites, I find hope in an intentional attempt to know God. When the Bible speaks of knowing God, it does not mean intellectual knowledge or belief in creedal sets of ideas. Knowing God is intimate and relational based on trust and reciprocal commitment. It is no accident that much of the language in the book of Jeremiah regarding God's relationship with God's people is marital and parental language. This is because we know God by relating to God as child and as partner. We must trust God to love us, to watch over us in all times, regardless of what trauma we encounter, to be present with us. And we must be loving, trustworthy, and vulnerable in response. Hope grows in relationship with God as I tend and give priority And commitment to that relationship. And we do this when we feed and nurture the relationship. How? By making time in solitude to listen and to look for God in all things. By taking the time to reflect on the state of our individual and collective lives. And to ask ourselves how we are worshiping the works of our own hands. By spending time in God's word, allowing it to show us truth, expose our rebellion, correct our mistakes, and train us to live God's way, as 2 Timothy 2 puts it. By spending time with the community of faith. By doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the God whose blanket is wide, whose love is inclusive, and who can be trusted to be with us. By allowing the spirit To lead us into all truth, to wake us up, grow us up, open our eyes to injustice, and give us courage to stand up for those who have no voice. An old parable, often attributed to the Cherokee Indians, goes like this. A grandfather told his grandson, My son, there's a battle between two wolves going on inside all of us. One is evil. That wolf is anger, jealousy, greed, selfishness, lies, and ego. It feeds on despair and fear. The other wolf is good. It is peace, unity, generosity, kindness, courage, and truth. It feeds on hope and compassion. Well, the boy thought about this, and then he said, Well, which wolf wins the battle? The wise old grandfather quietly replied, The wolf you feed, son. The wolf you feed. This parable is never more important than when we find ourselves on a trail of tears. This trail tempts us and tests us. We can easily become overwhelmed, fearful, disoriented, and despairing. But is that what we want to feed? Or do we listen to the prophet as he shouts her sounding word of hope? The time is surely coming, says the Lord. Return to me. I will bring you home. I love you. You are mine. I am writing my love on your heart. I forgive you. I will forget what lies behind us. All will be fresh and new. Feed hope my friends, and it'll grow. Tell your authentic story. Listen to the stories of others. Celebrate resilience. Look for connection. Listen for the love beating from your heart. Know that love is evidence of the image of God inside you. Look for it in the world around you and in the heart of those who walk on that trail alongside you. What feeds hope in you? Answer this question. And then eat a steady diet.